Welcome to Pop Culture Happy Hour, NPR's roundtable podcast about what we are watching, reading, and listening to. I'm Linda Holmes. I'm the editor of NPR's pop culture and entertainment blog, Monkey See. This week, we'll fill you in on some of the big and small films of the season. We'll bet on the fortunes of fall television. And as always, we'll close the show with what's making us happy this week. So stick around. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour. Check out the NPR One app for your phone. You can listen to news and stories from your local station and find new shows and stories to liven up your commute. Great, thoughtfully curated podcasts and stories are always ready when you are on NPR One. Find it in your app store, NPR O-N-E. Before we get started here in Historic Studio 44, let's go around the table. Stephen Thompson, what do you do at NPR? I am a writer and editor with NPR Music. Glenn Weldon, what do you do at NPR? I write about books, comics, and other stuff for the NPR website. And in our fourth chair this week, my film festival companion, Bob <laughs> Mondello. Bob, when you are not in the fourth chair at Pop Culture Happy Hour, what do you do at NPR? I talk about movies on All Things Considered. You absolutely surely do. Now, as those of you who listen to this show uh, every year at this time know, Bob and I uh, go to travel together to the Toronto International Film Festival each September. We recently got back. Uh, we were delayed a little bit by uh, me getting various airplane illnesses, <laughs> uh, but I'm much better now. And so Bob and I want to fill all of you in on some of what we saw in Toronto. Oh, boy, did we see a lot. Too. We did. Bob yeah. and I really looked at each other at the end of this festival and said, this was a really good festival. It was. It was a whole lot better than last year. And the, actually, the previous couple of years, I've always come out of it feeling like I saw one or two really terrific pictures that were likely to be up for Oscars. Yeah. This year, eight or nine, Yeah. you know, and I think it's not just luck of the draw. I think it was actually a better festival. I, I think, think it in was, general. yeah, I think it was an excellent festival. Yeah. What, what do you feel like stood out for you the most? What do you find yourself kind of going back to and thinking about the most? Oh, Moonlight. Uh, it's a gorgeous movie about a kid growing up in Florida. Uh, he's African-American. He is dealing with I guess coming of age but also mm-hmm. coming out it's mm-hmm. a uh, it's just an enormously affecting movie and beautifully shot and is if it isn't up for best picture I'm going to be very upset yeah. yeah I was curious about that because I've been hearing raves uh, consistently about it yeah, yeah no it, it, it is terrific it's yeah. just gorgeous what are some of the names involved like what's the there aren't it, it, most of the people in it I had not seen before um, the director is Barry Jenkins who made a picture about eight years ago maybe called Medicine for Melancholy that was really quite lovely. He's an independent director and he does gorgeous work. People don't know most of the actors in the uh, film. Boy, are they going to know them afterwards. Yeah. Bob saw that one and I didn't get a chance to see it, but I kept talking to critics who couldn't get into screenings for it, Uh, even though there were several. The press and industry screenings, you you just couldn't even, people couldn't even get in. Right. I went and I stood for an hour and a half out in front of a theater that has over 2,000 seats and there weren't enough seats. Yeah. I know another one that Bob and I both saw that we really liked, that we saw on the first day that we were there is a film called Loving, uh, which is about the couple that was at the center of the Supreme Court case that ultimately invalidated state laws against interracial marriage. And it's a film where there's not a lot of the Supreme Court case in it. It's not a courtroom Mm -hmm. movie. It's not even mostly a legal case movie. What it mostly is, is it's this story of this couple where, you know, they get married and then they get caught Uh, in their home, in bed together, and essentially they're banished from the state of Virginia. And they're pretty much told, you can go, but you can't ever come back to the state together. And this is where their families are, and they're essentially being kind of sent away. So it's the story of how it affects them to live under that kind of discrimination and and unhappiness. Now, you're younger than me. One of the shocking things watching this was that I I realized that when this decision was was finally came down from the Supreme Court. In other words, you have watched their 11 years of their marriage at that point. Right. And you get to the end. And when that decision came down, I was in my freshman year of college. Mm-hmm. It, it's shocking. I live just over the border from Virginia, right, at the mm-hmm. time. And the idea that I was living in 
the world and was sort of unconscious of this right. is embarrassing to me today. And watching this watching this movie was incredibly moving. It's a very I, good movie. How yeah. was Nick Kroll oddcasting as their lawyer? Yeah, mm. so Nick Kroll plays their lawyer. And the thing is, there is a tinge of comedy in that role. He plays it as sort of an inexperienced uh, young attorney mm-hmm. who's a little bit bluffing at the beginning about his ability to do it. So there is a sense in which he is introducing some of the comic relief in the movie. But it's also ultimately you have to believe him as a crusader for justice, essentially, as a civil rights lawyer. And I thought he was effective. But it, it is at the beginning. It is surprising because yeah. you sort of think it's just like, jarring to see somebody you always see. Is, was, is he the douche in uh, Parks yes. and Rec? Yes, yes, he is. But I thought he was good, though. Oh, but wait. Talk about jarring. I was walking down the street and I, I walked past Michael Shannon mm-hmm. and I thought. That's Michael Shannon. Only that's that looks like yeah. a younger, you know, less less craggy Michael Shannon. <laughs> well, anyway, he's in this movie as a, a Life magazine photographer. Every time he was in a movie this time, I thought, that's right. Oh my God! I mean, he, he was in several. Yeah, he's also Michael Shannon is also in the Tom Ford movie, yes. which oh, yeah, is called Nocturnal Animals. Which I think opinions were really divided on this movie. To me, it's very stylish. It all looks to me like a high end liquor ad. Um, <laughs> so it's very beautiful and it's very aesthetically perfect at the same time I was a little bit left cold it's Amy Adams is in it Jake Gyllenhaal is in it Michael Shannon is in Mm. it the Michael Shannon performance is my favorite part it's basically a movie inside a movie where a woman uh, is dealing with kind of her troubled marriage and gets the manuscript for her ex-husband's novel in which she's basically a character she's she's basically a character this is the this is the film that is smart enough to actually cast <laughs> Isla Fisher as the Amy Adams doppelganger, mm-hmm. playing on the fact that everyone has said for years Isla Fisher is an Amy Adams doppelganger. And you want to know how mortified I was when we came out of the movie and Linda told me that. Yeah. And I thought, wait, that wasn't the same person? <laughs> yeah. No, we were we were standing around talking and I said, well, you know, everybody always says that Isla Fisher looks just like Amy Adams. And he said, who's Isla Fisher? And I said, she's the redhead in the story inside the story. And he said, that wasn't Amy Adams. And I said, no. Uh, and he said, who was it? And I said, it was Isla Fisher. <laughs> so it was kind of one of those. But I think Nocturnal Animals, it's beautiful. I don't know ultimately if it worked. I would make a case for the the story within a story being Mm -hmm. very effective and the story that encases it being less less, less effective. I agree. So Bob and I, that is one of the themes from La La Land. Yeah, I assumed as much. Which is the Damien Chazelle musical he did Whiplash. I had this conversation with somebody on Twitter. Whiplash is such a kind of unpleasant movie in a lot of ways. La La Land is a really luscious, made to be sad in some places, but pleasurable to mm-hmm. watch. It's very much an old-fashioned musical. Right yeah, now. I would say it's, it's it's pretty much singing in the rain on a yeah. on a superhighway. Yeah, and if you... If, you if, I were, if I were casting a modern version of Singing in the Rain, like I might cast Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. They're great in it. And I, the interesting thing is, for me, it recalls 40s and 50s American kind of MGM musicals. Mm-hmm. But if you read Chazelle talking about it, he is more... Um, a devotee of the 60s French musicals. Oh, Rose yeah, Rose sure. Sherberg and all that stuff. So it kind of, I think it recalls all of those things. And it's so pretty, so pretty. Yeah, and no, it has it, that little theme. It's lovely. And it's got, it, it has a bunch of themes, actually. Yeah. There's some very pretty music. I sat there and thought in moments, for instance, when the two of them are just sort of sitting on a bench and he jumps up onto the bench and mm-hmm. you think, gosh, that must have been complicated. At which point they do a tap number that is just mm-hmm. lovely in mm-hmm. the middle of the street. I thought, okay, he's not quite Gene Kelly, right? No. But, you know, in other words, when he dances, you you sense that it is very well practiced, right? right? As opposed to just sort of, <laughs> I'm just moving. It doesn't right. seem effortless necessarily. Yeah. And I do all the, think... All the work he put in on the Mickey Mouse Club, right? <laughs> right. 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 I, I, I do think there is an effort in La La Land to acknowledge that they can sing and dance some, but it's not... Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily a movie that was made for that purpose. It's very much an L.A. movie. It's about them kind of having competing dreams. If you like the last five years, it has a little Mm -hmm. bit of that, everybody trying for their creative bliss and bumping into each other. But this one with serious chemistry between the two of them. I mean, I I just felt like they were in love. I didn't didn't question that. It's very viscerally beautiful. Now, this movie won the People's Choice Award, correct? Mm -hmm. Like, this was the crowd favorite 
at Toronto. Yeah, you'll see you'll see why when you see it. Yeah. You'll see why when you see it. <laughs> and and like they haven't you know often when we talk about the Toronto International Film Festival, we're kind of in a way doing a makeshift Oscars preview. Right. A little. The uh, track point, the track yeah. record of the movies that have won Critics Choice at this particular festival, there's a remarkable record of success. Yep. And I think there's some overlap. I don't think it's been perfect, but I think there's definitely right. been some overlap yeah. in some but of the But based those on awards. the films you've talked about, Moonlight and Loving and, and several you haven't, it mm-hmm. sounds like we're in for a year of Oscars slightly less white? Oh, it yeah. um, seems like it. I think slightly. I think Bob and I definitely saw a number of movies that at least had strong performances by people of color. I would also mention Lion, which Bob and I both really we, liked. Yeah, really Which lovely. stars uh, Dev Patel, ah. who has gone from sort of <laughs> gawky. They were doing kind of a gawky, nerdy thing with him for yep, a while. Mm-hmm. And now he's sort of this man, Boss, serious, man yeah. in this way. Uh, it work, works for him. I, I um, remember your Twitter. Is your Twitter <laughs> Yeah, feed, uh, and I don't, I don't say that to be gross. I just mean like it's a different sort of charisma right. that, that he's, you know, deploying in this movie. And so this is based on a true story of a guy who, when he was young, he was very, very poor and lived in India and he was lost. He became lost and he was adopted by a white couple uh, who lived in Australia. And he eventually decided to look for his uh, family in India and used Google Earth in this really interesting way where he was starting to try to map out how he could have wound up uh, where he wound up. You know, it's a true story. You can yeah. read about this guy. But... Well, you don't even have to read about it. You can hear the NPR piece about this guy because mm-hmm. we interviewed him not too long ago. Yeah. You know, it was funny because I was thinking, well, Dev Patel should really be nominated for something. And then I thought, except he's not in half of the movie. The part is played by Sonny Pawar, who is maybe five. Yeah. I mean, an yeah. adorable child and, he and has, really wonderful. He gets the credit at the beginning of the movie that says, and introducing. Yes. And it's one of the few times where you think like, yep, that's, <laughs> that's exactly the credit that they should put in there. Yeah. When I wrote about this movie, one of the things I wrote is that it's very important to to kind of respect that this guy had a life and a mom and a, a whole existence in India that was important to him. And that's one of the reasons why he wanted to, to go back when he was older. So the fact that they spend so much time with this kid and the circumstances of how he becomes lost really, I think, helps the movie stay out of the rut of kind of becoming, well, he was in India and that's all just kind of one thing. And then he has this life in Australia and then he goes back to kind of discover this mysterious, you know. Right. It didn't didn't feel like that at all. No, it doesn't at all because they take seriously kind of his mom and his brother and his family. And that's all really, really important stuff, despite the fact that he later has this other family that he also loves. Yeah. Yeah. It it must have been watching it. I was thinking and he goes back and he's essentially Australian by that time. Right. You know, no, it's yeah. 25 years later and it must be very strange to to return to this place. Oh yeah. my gosh, it works. About 30 minutes in I thought Okay, there're going to be tears at the end of this. You know, I'm going to I'm going to yeah. I'm going to react strongly to this. I yeah. had no idea. I was going <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I was I was yeah. I was just a basket case at the end and they right. they saved some great stuff at the at the very end of yeah. it. <laughs> so, while we're talking about sobbing uncontrollably, <clears throat> the saddest movie that I saw in Toronto is called Manchester by the Sea. Oh, yeah. It's the new Kenneth Lonergan oh, um, yeah. who mm-hmm. did You Can Count on Me and it stars Casey Affleck as a man who, I don't even know how to sort of describe the story, but you essentially meet him and realize that something terrible has happened he's, to him. He's emotionally he's, he's unavailable. He's emotionally unavailable. The movie is kind of about exploring how he got to that point and all the things that have happened and kind of asking whether there's any hope for him and, and how he's going to go forward. It is a crushingly sad movie. (laughs) It is a really crushingly sad movie. And really good. And a lot of people were talking about it in terms of Oscars. It's so good. He's so, Casey Affleck is so good in it. And, And I don't think it's a spoiler to say Michelle Williams is in this movie. And it's one of those where for most of the movie, I sort of thought, I don't know that this role is enough that I would have bothered to get Michelle Williams for it. (laughs) And then there's a scene where you realize, oh, they got her and needed her for this one That's scene. That's the law and order effect. It's, <laughs> it's, but it's, but it's, it's completely worth it when you see them play that scene together. I suspect that scene will win her a supporting actress Oscar if I had to guess. Wow. And it's, I mean, it's a, you know, it's very early, but uh, it's the kind of scene that wins Oscars. That one scene, and it's, it was, oh my gosh, it's such a sad movie, but so good. Okay, so speaking of Oscars y buzz performances, mm-hmm. did either of you see Natalie Portman as Jackie? We both did. 
and uh, Oscar-worthy, I should think. It's also, I think, a fascinating picture, although you were less excited because of the score, was it? That was one thing. So this film follows, uh, has Natalie Portman playing Jackie Kennedy at the time of JFK's assassination. For about a week. Through essentially the immediate aftermath, the funeral, uh, the, the process of kind of that transition, when you realize... On top of everything else, this is now a woman who has to abruptly leave her house with her kids. And, oh, yeah. and there's a there's a, a wonderful balancing of kind of the logistical upheaval and also this terrible tragedy. Mm-hmm. I think she's very good in it. I think a lot of the parts are interesting. There is a score by the same uh, composer who did Under the Skin. Mm-hmm. And it's clearly, it's this way on purpose, right? Nobody accidentally made this score. It's not a matter of ineptitude. It's just not a choice that I would have made. I find the score very overbearing and mm. distracting. There are sort of these big kind of like wah that I just think <laughs> That's very good. That, just, that was that's very much like, what it sounds like. That sounds yeah. like inception. I just it, it does <laughs> yep. feel a little inception y to me. I just didn't think it was appropriate to the piece. But those are artistic choices. And one of the great things about festivals is you go and you see a lot of people making artistic choices and either you agree with them or you don't agree mm. with them, but they're being made for kind of those aesthetic reasons. This is, this is another one that I feel like I have to play the age card here. I remember that week when he was assassinated, and I remember all I, watching this thing, it felt like it was happening again. Wow. And I, it, it's a very powerful picture. And I think I, I embraced the, the heaviness of that. I, I've got a scrapbook somewhere in, in a closet that's where I, I have in crayon, because I was a kid. I, in crayon, I have said, this is the darkest hour of my life. Wow. I think it, I think Bob <clears throat> thinks that when I say I found the music overbearing, he thinks I'm saying I thought it was too sad, which is not what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm I'm just saying to me it's distracting. I, I do, think it's fair. Yeah, I do want to make sure that we save time to talk about a couple things that got a little maybe less attention, sort of yeah. smaller. Oh, but wait, we should talk about the other big thing that did not get as much attention as we thought it was going to, the birth of a nation. Right. So there's been a lot of conversation around uh, the birth of a nation that's related to the fact that Nate Parker, who wrote and directed and stars in it, was tried and acquitted of rape in 1999. The circumstances of that incident, and I would say also the way he talks about it now, have both been very controversial. If you're Looking for more detail on that, there's a recent Code Switch episode that goes into to uh, a lot of detail about it. Um, but as far as the movie, what did you think of the movie, Bob? The movie's okay. Coming out of Sundance, we all expected this to be an Oscar nominee somehow, and it doesn't feel like one. Wow. It, feel, it feels like an okay picture. It's it's not bad. It's uh, it's well acted. It actually look it looks kind of glorious at times. And it doesn't feel overwhelming. We saw we saw another uh, picture um, called "I Am Not Your Negro." Yes, that is overwhelming and is also about race. Right. And this, yeah, that was that's a documentary about. It's a documentary based on an unfinished James Baldwin manuscript book project that he was working on when he died, which was trying to link Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., and Medgar Evers and talk about their lives, their deaths, and ultimately race in America. And what the documentarian has done is use a lot of James Baldwin not only clips of him speaking, which if you haven't ever watched a lot of clips of James Baldwin speaking, it's wonderful to see. There's, for example, quite a bit of material from a time that he was on Dick Cavett. (laughs) And you kind of go back and you think like, this used to be a thing that happened on talk shows more than I think it does now. So there's a lot of that, but also a lot of language of his from, I think, this manuscript that's voiced by Samuel L. Jackson and paired in many cases with contemporary video footage so that you're seeing James Baldwin narrate things like Ferguson and Trayvon Martin. And Martin. And the effect is really, really something. I highly Mm. recommend that documentary. Again, it's called I Am Not Your Negro, and I don't know exactly what the distribution plan for that is. I don't either. We We'll try to have a we'll try to have an eye out for it. Another thing on a much, much, much lighter note that I want to mention is a little chatty Brooklynite movie uh. that I saw called uh, Gene of the Joneses, which is it's just a story about this young black woman who lives in Brooklyn and she has kind of a whole matriarchy around her. Gloria Rubin is in it. Sherry Shepard is in it. Um, a bunch of terrific actresses. And then she gets into a little romance with the guy who actually played Grandmaster Flash in the get down. 
And whereas that's like a very assured kind of uh, confident performance, this is a much quieter performance from him. It's the most effective kind of rom-com subplot that I saw in Toronto. And they're going to be running this film actually on TV One, which is a cable network. And I really enjoyed it. I really, I go to every festival kind of longing for that knockabout, chatty, everybody just talking about stuff. Uh, I don't necessarily want every movie to be like that, but I go looking for for one of those every year. And I think Bob and I would also both want to mention a film called The Salesman. Oh, yes. Which is, uh, I, although Oscar I bet you for different reasons. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, which is Asghar Farhadi, who did A oh, Separation, the, and uh, also The Past, the which past. Bob really I also love loved. Yeah, yeah, and I flipped over both of those pictures. What What is the added bonus attraction for Bob Mondello, and I'm not sure this is going to appeal to everybody, is that the reason it's called The Salesman is that they're doing a production of Death of a Salesman. Uh, inside in, the movie. Right, inside the movie, in Farsi. And it's... It's the way that it relates to what's happening in this story of trauma within a marriage mm-hmm. is fascinating. I mean, it's just a, a really neat weaving. I, I'm, I'm knitting my fingers together as I'm yeah. saying this. It's a really neat weaving of, of different elements. Every time I see a picture by this guy, I, I feel as if he's making things a little more complicated yeah. and engaging. Here's the funny thing, right? We're coming out of this segment. We talked about a whole bunch of movies. We are basically out of time, but... I don't know if Bob talked about everything he saw that he liked, but I didn't. There's a film called Abacus by Steve James, which is about the the only company that was p- prosecuted for mortgage fraud coming out of the mm. uh, financial crisis. Uh, I liked A Monster Calls, which is a kids movie. Right. I um, like Barry, which is a, basically it's another story about Barack Obama, but yep. this one's mm. in when he was in college as opposed to yeah. when he was dating. There's, there's quite a bunch of stuff that, that I think we both saw and liked. And so uh, stay tuned over the next few months and we will, I'm sure, revisit some of these movies. Or I wrote a whole bunch uh, on the blog about uh, stuff that I saw in Toronto. Bob has done some coverage on the Mm -hmm. air. We've both done some coverage on the air. And uh, I'm sure we'll be back to talk about some of this stuff later during awards season. All right. Well, come and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH. Ask us your questions about the Toronto International Film Festival. Tell us what you're thinking about awards movies of the coming months, and we'll be happy to hear from you. When we come back, it's going to be time for an annual tradition, our fall television pool, in which we try to figure out what shows might do well and which ones we're just pulling for in general. So come right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from USA Network's new series, Falling Water, which explores the questions, what if someone could walk out of their dream and into yours? What if they could use your dreams against you without you ever knowing? On October 13th, producers of The Walking Dead and Homeland present Falling Water, a new original drama where the battle for your dreams is real and happens while you sleep, because those who can control dreams can control the world. Falling Water, a new original series. Thursday, October 13th at 10, 9 central, only on USA Network. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's time for us to engage in a yearly tradition here at the show, which is our fall TV pool. Now, the way that we have typically done this is uh, we pick a show and we're betting that it will do well in the ratings, last a long time. It doesn't usually happen, particularly for me. But before we do that, I just want to remind everybody of what you picked last year and how it went. I personally picked The Grinder, which I will defend on principle, but it did not last. Too bad, RIP The Grinder. Stephen, you picked Scream Queens, the Ryan Murphy horror show, still on. But I expected a little bit more uh, social media right. buzz around it. Didn't mm-hmm. happen, though. Yeah. Glenn, you picked Supergirl. Yep. Uh, still on, although hopped networks. Yeah. So, you know, still on technically, though. Yeah. But a, slap a big asterisk on that. Exactly. <laughs> Whereas Bob Mondello was uh, smart enough to pick Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, <laughs> which not only is still on. A musical. But a it, musical. Has, it has won awards. Uh, we all like it here. Yeah. Many other people mm-hmm. like yeah. it. I think that's the winning pick. An right? emotional <laughs> victory. Yeah, My reaction the... to that when you it was like musicals. <laughs> That's right, but it all worked out I well. I was so wrong. Bob's the winner. Show. Bob's the winner from last year's picks. So the way we're going to do it this year is first we're going to name a show that is uh, you know to be judged the old-fashioned way by ratings and uh, and legs and whether it can last. Then we are going to do one that is just you know something you're pulling for, something you're happy to see. Not really a ratings call, a call with the heart, shall we say? <laughs> so start us off, Stephen Thompson. What is your regular ratings pick? 
we're doing this a couple weeks later than we usually do. Some of these shows sure. have already premiered. We made the decision that that was okay. Sure. Even though maybe, you know, the initial ratings would tip the hands of whether these shows were already successful. Doesn't I matter. I picked Designated Survivor. And that is the <laughs> one where Kiefer Sutherland plays the Secretary of HUD. Yes. Who becomes president after a massive uh, attack on the State of the Union address. Right. They basically blow up the government during the State of the Union address, killing basically everybody. Uh-huh. It would have to be everybody to get the HUD. <laughs> right, right, and they and they play off that. This is not Jack Bauer, Kiefer right. Sutherland. This is mousy glasses. At uh, least hoodie. at first. At, at least, least at, at least at first. It is very clear from the first two episodes of this show that he will turn out to be a good president. That right. he will turn out to be a un- uniter. Right. My initial take, especially on the pilot, was that this was like if you're going to take a show about a devastating terror attack and make it a little goofy. Yeah. This was kind of doing that. That's what I didn't like about it, though. Mm-hmm. And I get that, and I and I think. Even after watching the first two episodes of it, I still don't feel like they have in any way captured the immense loss for the surviving people. Like Cal Penn is in it and and he has a few good scenes where he's basically talking about like, I lost everybody. I Mm -hmm. lost everybody I know. Mm -hmm. But I don't feel like they've necessarily captured the weight so much as that they're trying to recreate like what would happen. It's a thought experiment. It's a thought experiment. It's a thought experiment you play every time you watch the State of the Union. Yes. If you are a bad person. To give it the weight it would necessarily need Uh makes it a lot less fun to watch. Right. And so I, I, and I think like my initial take on the on the on the pilot was sort of like oh this is goofy this is fun it's like the second episode to its credit tries to get into some of the chewier darker aftermath there's a whole subplot in the second episode about profiling of muslims in the wake of this attack that hits a little harder and or at least is aiming to hit a little bit harder it's a show i dearly want to watch with ari shapiro Mm -hmm. uh, host of all things considered used to be a white house correspondent he's really fun to pick over inaccuracies with Mm -hmm. (laughs) like katie and i just decided we were going to start watching a big juicy hour-long TV drama and that this was going to be it. And so far, we have not been disappointed in the decision to do that. There you so go. Designated Survivor. Designated Survivor, right. Stephen Thompson's pick. Glenn Weldon, what is your pick? I picked uh, Timeless on NBC, which is about uh, three folks who go back in time in a prototype time machine because the actual time machine has been stolen by somebody with mysterious intent, uh, <laughs> probably sinister, or is it, mm-hmm. uh, is the kind of thing going on here. I picked that for a very f- specific formula. Sean Ryan, who did The mm-hmm. Shield, plus Eric Kripke, who did Supernatural. That strikes me as a really potent combination. <laughs> Two very different things being done together. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus Malcolm Barrett, the actor who plays Rufus, the engineer, technician, reluctant hero, grumbly guy, who played the lab guy Lem on a show called Better Off Ted. Sure. Mm. Uh, I would follow this guy to the end of the yep. earth yep. or to the end of time. And he's great. He's funny. I've seen the I've seen the pilot. Now, I constantly go, every time we do this, for some kind of hour-long high concept show and I always lose yeah. remember Terra Nova Terra Nova, was remember Terra Nova that was the name I was trying to think of Which this is sounds even, like Terra it's Nova a, it's a time travel hour long <laughs> high concept <laughs> show but I think I just I want something besides a cop show yeah. besides yeah. a lawyer show besides a doctor you. show I, I really you. I'm pulling for this I, I, really I saw the description to. and wanted this show to be good mm-hmm. yeah 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 I mean I look back a lot at some time travel shows and a lot of them a lot of them a lot of them are just one season in a way. It's, it's showrunners who know what they're doing, though. Yeah, that's it. And and I just, as I say, there's also a uh, female historian. There's a special ops guy that go back in time with them. Who cares about them? They, they <laughs> seem very flat. Uh, not interesting. But Malcolm Barrett is great and funny and wonderful. So uh, that's uh, timeless. That's my pick. Thank you very much, Glenn Weldon. You Weldon. are going to lose. Yep. <laughs> Bob Mondello, what did you pick? Well, I have the disadvantage of not actually having seen a full episode, even though this show has been on on ABC a couple of times. Um, it's speechless. The actual actor, Micah Fowler, uh, has cerebral palsy. Right. And the kid who Micah Fowler plays uses a wheelchair and he uh, is nonverbal, but they're a little less specific about his medical situation, at least in the early going. But the show is really about his family. His mom is played by Minnie Driver. He's going to a new school. And so a lot of it is about their adjustment to kind of a new neighborhood and a new house. And it's really about the whole family, even though um, some of the, the stuff that they're dealing with is specific to kind of his situation. From the clips, it looks like a very funny 
comedy, which I is, like it a lot. Which is sort yeah, of not too. where you expect it to go. It's interesting because one of the reasons that Designated Survivor did not appeal to me as much was that I have been overdosing on brain dead. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, you know, so that it felt a little too too much like it. But this, I mean, the clips from it at least look very funny. Yeah. Um, so I'm rooting for that one. Yeah. yeah. I, th- I think if you remember Minnie Driver from not just her, her films when she was kind of doing Goodwill Hunting and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, but also later when she started to show up on like Will and Grace mm-hmm. and she had these wonderful kind of body interesting comedic turns you get a little bit more of that from her here she's really uh she's a terrific comedian she's a terrific comedian she's very funny in this you don't want to give people cookies for doing what they should do anyway but this is a show that cast a kid with cerebral palsy to play a kid who uses a wheelchair rather than you know a lot of other shows that have cast somebody who doesn't and that kid spoke a press tour I think what I would say is the same mentality that led them to cast him mm-hmm. is in the entire show. It's a very, very intelligent and thoughtful, but still really funny and kind of irreverent take on what this family is is uh, dealing with. Yeah, I haven't heard what you picked yet, Linda, but I think Bob wins. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because, no, because Bob, wins. Uh, Bob probably doesn't know this, but it's already been picked up for a full season. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's yeah. fair. That's yep. a metric we use. I uh-huh. like this. I like this show a whole lot. I like that show a lot. But I didn't pick it. I nudged Bob to pick it. (laughs) You picked Kevin Can Wait. (laughs) I did not pick Kevin Can Wait. I picked, uh, and this again is not a real stretch for people who know me, but I picked The Good Place, which is uh, stars Kristen Bell as a woman who is sort of a bad person who goes to heaven and discovers that her orientation guide to heaven is Ted Danson, who... Boy, you know, Ted Danson, after Cheers, went through this phase where he was doing a lot of drama. He did damages and Mm -hmm. a bunch of other stuff. And now you're sort of back to Ted Danson just being really funny. And it was it's so much fun to remember. Mm -hmm. Like, he's so funny. And it turns out that she's kind of accidentally in heaven and doesn't really belong there. And so then she has to kind of try to get... She has to sort of learn to deserve to be in heaven, if I can put it that way. And uh, the show is created by Mike Schur, who co-created Parks and Rec and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And particularly in Parks and Rec, I think he has an interest in pondering goodness, an interest in uh, that as an interesting dramatic idea. So that's a little bit what's going on here is he's still kind of very invested in talking about humanity in these comedic but still big and thoughtful ways. Kristen Bell, I think, is really funny in this. Like I said, Ted Danson is really funny in this. It's one of those shows that has the opportunity to do a lot of background jokes. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, when he's well, sure. setting up heaven, what does heaven look like? Yep. And it turns out that every neighborhood is different because some people like hot weather, and so they go to a hot weather heaven, and some people like cold weather, so they go to a cold weather heaven. But it's also down to the specifics of, like, there's one restaurant that's just peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> and that's it's, my heaven. And it's kind of because, well, you know, who wouldn't want a restaurant that's just PB&J? But also when she gets there, she comments that there's a lot of frozen yogurt places. <laughs> and he sort of says, yeah, I don't know. People really like frozen yogurt. I don't, I don't know what to tell So it's it allows for a lot of experimentation with what heaven would be. So to me... I have no idea whether this show is going to be successful. I haven't found the first episodes to be kind of like overwhelmingly uniformly great. I have found them to be a little more uneven, but I also felt that way about the first episodes of Parks and Rec and to a lesser extent Brooklyn Nine-Nine. My history with watching his stuff is that it tends to take a little time to kind of settle in because it's so invested in character. So I am watching this one. I have no idea what will happen to it. But I want good things for it. So the other round that we're going to do is we're going to pick something where you don't have to worry about whether it's going to be judged by ratings or whatever. Just pick something that you're psyched about, that you want to talk about, that you're pulling for. Stephen Thompson, what did you pick? So the metric I went with for this was I wanted to pick something that I wanted to see more of, something that represented an advancement or an improvement in television itself. And I picked a show coming on HBO on October 9th called Insecure, starring Issa Rae, who is the creator and star of the web series Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl. And a number of things that I'm excited about about this show. First of all, the trailer makes it look really fun. It is really fun. Uh, you, and you've seen it? It's I'm, really good. I, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm not surprised in the least that it's good. For one thing, it's on HBO. HBO has girls. Girls has no black people on uh-huh. it. And, mm-hmm. and this show is clearly meant to, to serve as somewhat of an answer for that. But it also, it seems to be setting up this really interesting premise about uh, she's turning 30 She's trying to decide whether she wants to be confident and doesn't 
care or less confident but cares a lot. And like she's at this crossroad of deciding which person she wants to be. I just found her instantly likable and rootable and setting up all these very funny and universal but also specific it just looks like a fun interesting show and it does one thing that almost always portends well if you're me the first season is eight episodes long it's very good Mm -hmm. and i think that is becoming the sweet spot for tv comedy Mm -hmm. i think six episodes for shows like fleabag and catastrophe it's a little too short 13 episodes is almost always a little too long eight is just right i am really excited about this show insecure on hbo good pick excellent pick i support you glenn weldon I picked uh, Luke Cage, and I know we're not going with uh, traditional metrics of success, but uh, how about this? Did it break Netflix? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, kind of did. Kind of did for two hours on Saturday. Uh, Very likely, people trying to watch Luke Cage broke Netflix. What I like about it is that it seems to me to be doing what superhero stories have to do, which is to work on an emotional, a metaphorical level to say something about the world. Very importantly, not allegorical, not intellectual, not X equals Y, and I think that's where Nolan gets into some trouble uh-huh. uh, a lot. Uh, there's no code to crack because once you crack the code in an allegory, everything just sort of falls apart. It becomes about itself. You have to hit it at oblique angles and you have to do what superhero stories do, which is find resonances. You know, I think a lot of my fellow nerds talk too much about how there are modern myths. There's some of that, but basically what you have to do is you have to hit a thing of wish fulfillment. You have to earn some kind of feeling of inspiration. You have to inspire. And you also have to to tell a story about triumphing over adversity. That's why we tell ourselves these stories, right? That's what they're for. So we find ourselves in a cultural and racial environment at the tail end of 2016, where what is being put forward in this series is a very simple notion of a bulletproof black man. That's fascinating. That has a, a very essential power. There are Elements, trappings of black exploitation, which are fun, but don't really go to the core of this, I don't think. And there are lots of superhero trappings as well. They are dutiful. Does somebody stand over a dead body going, no? Yes. Yes, that will happen because it's a superhero <laughs> thing and you can't get away. Fish got to swim, bird got to fly. But what's fascinating about this is that in the course of these episodes, they give these characters room to breathe. A scene will happen and you will realize that what you had just watched was a scene in which two characters sit and talk about blackness. I mean, look around. Mama Mabel loved this place. It was her political connections got that jungle gym over there built. (laughs) We doing this for jungle gyms? Those political connections were just freaky old men she blackmailed to push the paperwork through. Why do you think she blackmailed those politicians? It was all to serve a greater good. Have you forgotten that? No. This building may be your bank right now, but the Crispus Attucks, Madam C.J. Walker, Adam Clayton Powell, Shirley Chisholm complexes will be vibrant communities, reflecting the change that's going to keep Harlem black and us in the green. You're watching a show where Alfre Woodard and Myershala Ali, as, you know, two kingpins, ostensibly evil people, are talking about the context of the history of Harlem and the history of blackness. It's just fascinating. What I think is most fascinating in this series is that the breakout character is a character with a marvelous name of Misty Knight, uh, (laughs) who is a cop played wonderfully by Simone Missick. Simone Missick kind of nudges uh, Mike Coulter, who plays Luke Cage, off the screen a lot of times because she's, whether it's the writing, whether it's the poor ones, I don't know. But she is the breakout character. She, she's a cop. That's the thing that fascinates me about this show. So I love the show. Uh, I think it's doing everything it needs to do. I'm not a huge fan of the Marvel-grounded street-level characters, but this won me over in a big way. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Glenn Weldon. Bob Mondello, what did you pick? It's really hard to follow Glenn Weldon. It is. I mean, it is. <laughs> oh my God. It, I, there's so much thought in that that, and here I am going to say that I really want to do the time warp again. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I, they're doing a musical version of and, and and this time instead of starring Tim Curry, it's going to star Laverne Cox, which mm. changes things sure. I, it, in, yeah. in a really interesting way. Right. And, to have and, that character played by a woman instead of a man is a very interesting choice. Exactly. And, I, and we, we tried to talk to them about that a little bit at Press Store, and they sort of took the position like whoever, you know, which I thought was <laughs> great. really interesting. Well, that's kind of great. And, and Tim Curry is in it, albeit briefly. And 
I just love the idea. And I was especially excited because it was live. And then I found out that it isn't live. Nope, it's not, it's live. not live. So, oh well. But nope. um, but I think it's fair to say that it would be hard to do the, the Rocky Horror Picture Show experience yeah. live, live. So it makes sense to maybe do it this way. Having just been to Rocky Horror Picture Show in a theater not too long ago for the 40th anniversary, I did a piece on it. And I realized that I can't stay up past midnight. Oh. So it's going to yeah. be really nice. <laughs> I just... I You're the one person who has ever fallen asleep to Rocky Horror. So at any event, um, it'll it'll be very nice to see it at a decent hour on Fox. That's right. Fox's upcoming Rocky Horror Picture Show. Thank you very much, Bob Mondello. My pick, uh, I have mentioned before on this show, but coming October 21st, is the PBS Great Performances called Hamilton's America. There you go. And uh, this is uh, a documentary. It is not a full performance of Hamilton. It is a combination of documentaries about the historical figures and uh, behind-the-scenes stuff about making the show and then clips from the show. My big thing with this is I want great performances to be in the forefront of people's minds because great performances does still do a ton of really interesting stuff. And my guess is that there's a chance that one day down the road, great performances will be your way to see Mm -hmm. all of Hamilton, just Mm -hmm. not right now. So I am totally into great performances, Hamilton's America coming October 21st. Not my most out-of-the-box pick, (laughs) but that's okay. And when we come back, it's going to be time for our favorite segment of This Week and Every Week, What is Making Us Happy This Week? So stick around. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Purple Carrot. Purple Carrot is changing the way we think about dinner with their exclusive plant-based meal kit, delivering delicious plant-based recipes and pre-portioned ingredients each week. Purple Carrot is on a mission to help you and the planet feel great. Discover the power of plants with Purple Carrot. Find out what they're serving up this week by visiting purplecarrot.com and be sure to use code NPR to get $30 off your first order. All right, let's open the podcast portal so we can hear from my friend Dan Pashman about the Sporkful. Hey, Stephen. So on the Sporkful podcast, we obsess about food to learn more about people. And right now we're doing a special series on race, culture, and food called Who Is This Restaurant For? I hope people will check it out. It's a great show. Check out the Sporkful from WNYC Studios wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much, Dan. Later, Stephen. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. Before we get to our final segment, we do want to remind you that we are coming to the West Coast for a tour in the later part of October. And although most of our shows are sold out, we have uh, tickets still for our show in Portland, Oregon on October 19th. That's at Revolution Hall. We do have some tickets left for that show. So Portland, please come out and see us. It's going to be a great show. We'll be there with Audie Cornish. We have some really fun segments planned. We're excited. I'm writing a quiz. All kinds of stuff is happening. And if you're not in Portland, if you are uh, elsewhere in the western perhaps part of the country and you want to come to a very good podcast festival that we will be at and many other people will be at, you will want a ticket to the Now Hear This uh, festival, which is um, uh, in Anaheim. And our show is on Saturday, October 29th. There are a bunch of podcasts that are going to be at this festival. It is a I, I counted at some point that there were something like 10 that have been featured on our show. Yeah. Well, as, and speaking of podcast royalty, Guy Branham will be our fourth. In, uh, absol- in absolutely. Guy Branham, uh, who you might know from Pop Rocket or from his being a very funny comedian, yep. will be with us uh, in Anaheim on the 29th. And tickets for that are at nowhearthisfest.com. And uh, that brings us, at long last, to our final segment and our favorite segment of this week and every week. What is making us happy this week? Stephen Thompson, what is making you happy this week, buddy? It is early fall. And as somebody who covers music, early fall tends to be a bonanza of of really, really big, hotly anticipated records, kind of right before this lull that comes in late fall as you get toward the end of the year. And on one day last week, uh, Friday, September 30th, there was this absolute deluge of new albums by artists I love. Just spending the day trying to unpack those records was just uh, immensely rewarding and kind of wonderful. I spent much of the weekend listening to the new Bon Iver. Bon Iver is one of my favorite artists. But part of what I love about Bon Iver is that he is 
made these three records, all of them are drastically, drastically different. And I love all of them, not necessarily equally, but intensely. This record's called 22, a Million. It's full of all these, the packaging is full of all these strange symbols that are sometimes referenced in, in the music. And I would describe this record as like a scuffed up jewel. He has this choir boy beauty to his voice, but he spends this record kind of warping and degrading and playing with it in ways that make it seem more delicate and more fragile and kind of in the process more precious and and in a good way. When I say precious, I mean in a good way. I absolutely love this record. It's probably my favorite album of the year. I have certainly loved other stuff that he's done. It's his first record in five years and it's glorious. The track on the Bon Iver that I listened to over and over again, he's done this before, but uh, he he uh, manipulates his voice uh, at various points on this record and does it most intensely on this song. He, he's using not a vocoder, it's a it's a machine called a Messina that allows, allows you to really do some creative tricks with your voice. The song is called 715 Creeks. Soiling with your blood, I remember something. And being rushing, kissing on a night, second to last. Finding both your hands, a second sun came past the glass. And oh, I know it felt bad, I had you in my grasp. So yeah, that's that's uh, 715 Creeks from Bon Iver. 715, actually, the area code where I grew up, because uh, Bon Iver and I are both from Wisconsin. The other one is an album called A Seat at the Table by Solange. Uh, Solange, of course, is Beyonce's sister. And a Solange record, This is a, it's a very long-awaited record. The last thing she put out was an EP back in 2012. People have been waiting for this thing for a long time. And it's this very dark and meditative R&B record that she herself describes as, quote, a project on identity empowerment, independence, grief, and healing. I tried to run it away Thought in my head be feeling clearer I traveled 70 states Thought moving around make me feel better I tried to let go my lover Thought if I was alone then I could recover to write it away or cry it away. Don't you cry, baby? Away. There's also a book that you can get that's meant to accompany it. I love how more and more records and more and more of the records I'm excited about come with this air of mystery to them and come with this air of like. This was envisioned as a multimedia music and visual, and I just love how much time you're supposed to spend unpacking this music. Music sometimes comes as a flood, as a deluge, and it's very easy to let stuff just kind of wash past you. I like records that cause you to stop and think, and this record, which I've only begun to dig into, in part because the Bon Iver record came out on the same day, I am very, very excited about digging into it further. It's called A Seat at the Table by Solange. Thank you very much, Stephen Thompson. Glenn Weldon, what is making you happy this week, sir? Got another kind of seasonal one. It's October. It's my favorite time of the year. It's the time of layering and and, and uh, decorative gourds <laughs> and uh, the scent of uh, burning leaves. And especially, it's a time for an annual ritual of watching the films of a, a powerful trinity. Roger Corman, Vincent Price. <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe. Nice. Uh, there's a series of these films. Uh, some of them are weirder than others. And historically, they're all available on Netflix. Not so this damn year for reasons that escape mm-hmm. me. But you got your Pit and the Pendulum. You got your Tales of Terror. You got your House of Usher. You got the Haunted Palace, which is weird because that's actually based on a Lovecraft short story. But then he throws some post stuff in there around the edges of it for no reason. Uh, you got the Raven, which is probably the funniest. You got Boris Karloff, Vincent Price, Peter Laurie, and Jack Nicholson. But my favorite is The Mask of the Red Death, uh, which is the closest I think Roger Corman ever came to making a good movie. Um, <laughs> it is strike. There are some striking visuals in it. The colors are really, really saturated. The colors really pop. It is cheesy, creepy fun, and it's not available on Netflix, but I think you can probably rent it on iTunes or something like that. It's worth seeking out. So that's The Mask of the Red Death. Make yourself some popcorn, put on some hot cider, and bask. There you go. Thank you very much. Bask in the mask. Thank you very much, Glenn Weldon. 
Bob Mondello, what's making you happy this week? What's making me happy is that audiences are not getting up at the end of movies quite as quickly as they Mm -hmm. were. And I've discovered why. I'm going to an awful lot of pictures that are about real people. Mm -hmm. And directors have discovered that if they show you the real, real people after they've showed you Mark Wahlberg playing the Mm -hmm. real people, that people stay in their their seats. And as a a critic, I have to sit there to watch the credits anyway because what, who knows? Because Marvel has decided that every... Every movie has to end with some mm-hmm. extra scene. But audiences routinely get up and, and to watch them being stopped at Snowden and Loving and Deepwater Horizon and Christine and Lion and Denial, all these movies, when you see the actual person, you do this thing in your head that, oh, well, you know, she actually looks like the real person. Right. Right. But it's also kind of compelling and incredibly moving. And at the end of Lion, it made me cry. And how often does that happen? Very nice. Thank well, only, you. Only several times in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Bob Mondello. Mine is kind of a classic. I picked up a new TV show that I hadn't watched since the, the first episode or two. They just started the third season of Younger on TV Land, which stars Sutton Foster. Ah. This is a show that uh, really fell through the cracks for me. I watched the first couple episodes. I liked it. I love Sutton Foster. Yep. I go back to, obviously, Bunheads with her and, and a bunch of other stuff. But... This is a show where she plays a woman. It's another one with kind of a tricky premise because it sounds dumb, which is she plays a woman who is 40, who passes for 26 to get a job in publishing. And, you know, despite the fact that that's kind of a, a silly premise, it actually becomes, uh, over the course of the first couple seasons, each, each, each of which has, I think, 12 episodes, it becomes really a show that is about aging, and in an intelligent way, it's not only about that, but it is about that. And one of the things that happens to her is she develops a relationship with this much younger guy who thinks she's 26. And hmm. it is really I think, honest about the fact that her relationship with this guy is neither about the fact that he's younger than she is, nor is it not entirely about that. It is clear that some of the draw of him is that he's young and is that he's kind of he's at a different place in his life. He's not weighted down with all of the kind of history and baggage that she feels like she has at her age. So she likes it that he's a lot younger than she is. But she also legitimately likes him. They play fair with that guy. He's not just like a young dude with tattoos. Like he is that, but he's also a good dude. And so the show is admirably, I think admirably ambivalent about that. And then she also gets to know a guy who works at her company who is significantly closer in age to her, who is played by Peter Herman, who you might remember as the hair in the 30 Rock episode, The Head and the Hair, which is the one where Liz Levin turns out to be related to him. So they can't, even though he's kind of perfect and they're perfect for each other, they turn out to be cousins, I think. He is such a charismatic dude, and every now and then he shows up as the boyfriend or the love interest in something, and I always think, pick that guy, you know? (laughs) So he's sort of the other person in her life. I do feel like this show is very empathetic to her. It's not making fun of her. It's not making fun of, you know, she becomes friends with this woman played by Hilary Duff, who's like a young kind of publishing woman. And it's it's kind to her, too. It's There's no bad guys in this show, really. And I do find it ultimately a very interesting exploration of, of like I said, her relationship with this much younger dude and her feelings about aging in general. Perhaps it's just that it, it strikes you know, that chord with me personally uh, as a lady over 40. But I, I really like it. Uh, younger uh, on TV land just started the third season. I don't know if it still is. But for me, the first two seasons were all on demand. And I watched it all in one day. <laughs> so thank you very much for Younger on TV land. And that brings nice. us to the end of our show. You can follow all of us on Twitter. You can follow me at NPR Monkey C. You can follow Stephen at I Dislike Stephen. You can follow Glenn at G.H. Weldon and Bob at Bob underscore Mondello. You can follow our producer, Jessica Reedy, at Jessica underscore Reedy, and our producer, Emeritus and Music Director, Mike Katzif at Mike Katzif, K-A-D-Z-I-F. Mike's band, Hello Come In, provides our in and out music, which you're tapping your foot to right now. So thanks to all of you guys for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Great. And thanks to all of you for listening, and we'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>